0: Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast on Jonathan Reutis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yoruba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. On August 8th, we launch a new and exciting exhibit about the 1968 election to mark the 50th anniversary of that tumultuous year when Richard Nixon was elected President of the United States. It's called Vote Like Your Whole World Depended On. It. Marking this 50th anniversary, there have been a series of books released. Among them is Richard Vinen's 1968 Radical Protest and Its Enemies, which explores how the events of 1968, from anti-war marches, worker strikes, to violence on the streets, shape much of the West's culture today. Richard Vinen is a professor of history at King's College and the author of a number of major books on 20th century Europe. He won the Wollstone Prize for History for his previous book, National Service. Professor Vinen, welcome. Thank you very much. As I mentioned earlier, this is the 50th anniversary of the year 1968, that tumultuous year. Um, A great reason, obviously, for this book to come out, but when and how did you come to write this book?
1: Um, Well, I wrote it uh, partly, as you say, to mark an anniversary, and partly because I wanted to kind of widen the perspective a bit on 1968. So partly I wanted to write a book that's not simply about 1968 as a year, but 1968 as a kind of longer period the French talk about the 68 years so to put it in the kind of context of things going on in the run-up to and the aftermath of 1968 and also I wanted to broaden the perspective a bit in the sense that uh, I wanted to put radical protest in its context which means partly looking at who opposed radical protest but also sometimes looking at the more blurred lines which I think particularly become apparent if you go back before 1968 the blurred lines between radical protest and of more mainstream politics
0: could you define what is what does radical protest mean
1: well i think in the context of 1968 it means a protest that's against established politics but that means quite often established politics or comes to mean established politics of the left as well as established politics of the right so that um, uh, it's a protest that breaks with what had previously been the kind of conventional pattern so a protest in America is very largely di- uh, directed, after all, it's a, a Democrat government that in Britain is very largely directed against a government by the Labour Party. Um, and a protest which, you know, swings much more sharply to, to the left, uh, particularly in this moment of kind of high radicalism.
0: That conventional pattern, um, just to touch up on that a little bit, the tumultuous politics of the 1960s is often characterised um by the generational gap um mm-hmm. would you would you say that is accurate
1: yeah i think it is i think it varies a bit from country to country so there's uh, a big baby boom in america united states uh britain and france um there's not a baby boom all over the world so for example west germany actually has quite low birth rates immediately after the second world war um but in certainly those three countries because there's a baby boom there's then By 1968, a very large proportion of people of kind of student age, about 20. So I think there's partly just a kind of demographic driver for 1968 Uh, and then a generational conflict linked to other things linked to the sense that, you know, the older generation is a kind of generation that's often been marked and molded by the Second World War, which I think, in fact, is especially important to the United States. but I wouldn't say it's all about generational conflict. And one of the funny things is that I think 68 radicals themselves would often not want to see themselves as simply representatives of a youth culture or would argue that you know a generation was uh, tied up with a revolt against other things as well. Um, and um, you do sometimes get quite old people involved in protest in 1968, of whom my favorite is... Um, Uh, An aristocratic conservative lady or lady from a conservative family in Britain who turns up to heckle her son at the Oxford Union when he makes right-wing speeches.
0: You had had mentioned this is a bit of a comparative study, um, mainly um, from countries of the West, United States, Great Britain, Mm. France and West Germany. How Mm -hmm. did the radical protest movement uh, manifest itself, um, I guess, generally in each of these countries?
1: Um, well, uh, partly, obviously, in terms of um, protest against the Vietnam War, which is very, very important, clearly particularly important to the United States, although slightly paradoxically important in these other countries as well, although Britain is not involved in the Vietnam War. Uh, France is not only not involved in the Vietnam War, but Charles de Gaulle is really pretty openly an opponent of American policy in Vietnam. But in spite of that, Vietnam does become a radicalizing force for young people. Um, and obviously a certain kind of anti-Americanism pervades a lot of what's going on in 1968. There are specific national issues, so obviously civil rights in the United States is a very important part of the kind of lead up um, to um, uh, the events of 1968. Um, And I think also a a kind of rejection of the Cold War, so a rejection of American influence, but also a rejection of sort of conventional Soviet communism um, and a rejection of what is seen as authoritarianism on both sides.
0: You talk a little bit about the um, the sort of the ideological influences of radical protests, in particular the New Left. Um, what mm-hmm. were the sort of, who were the ideological forefathers and what, you know, what did they believe and how did that, um, you know, how did that manifest itself into uh, the politics of the 1960s, particularly the politics of the New Left? Um... Uh, there's a well, the whole group of people, I suppose,
1: um, who would be influences on the, the new left. Uh, again, I think it varies slightly from country to country so that um, although a particular influence in the United States, C. Wright Mills especially, um, uh, I suppose uh, kind of non-Soviet Marxism is very important, particularly in Europe, particularly in um, France. Uh, so quite a lot of uh, french radicals would have thought of themselves as maoists or trotskyists although a particular variety of maoism you get in western europe usually doesn't in fact know very much about what's going on in cultural revolution china um you get a reference to sartre and camus who are both important writers i think for 68 as looking back although again with very sharp national differences. So it's striking that in France, I think Sartre is the great uh, figure of 1968. Sartre, of course, is still around. um, And Sartre, who has been slightly eclipsed in the early 1960s, becomes, comes back to kind of prominence in 1968 very much. Um, Whereas uh, Camus, in fact, is very much admired, I think, in the United States. And sometimes uh, what has been actually quite a sharp conflict between Sartre and Camus in France is rather elided over when he crosses the Atlantic. So Camus has a more kind of abstract and detached kind of presence in America, which tends to remove him from the specifically French context he was involved in.
0: You mentioned a particular uh, American who was a catalyst, Tom Hayden. Who was Who was Tom mm-hmm. Hayden?
1: Tom Hayden's uh, a student leader from the early 1960s, a uh, very key figure in Students for Democratic Society. Um, he's... Uh, He's. I think he's very characteristic of lots of people in 68 in that um, very similar to cohn bondit in France. Uh, he's very charismatic, I think. Uh, he's not really tremendously ideological. So I don't think he's a person of sort of uh, great preoccupation with political theory or anything like that. Um, but he's someone who is a very effective kind of magnet for, um, uh, you know, attracting um, interest from other people. He's someone, in some ways, I think he epitomizes a certain kind of innocence about uh, the the student movement in the United States in the early 60s. So someone who's very much mobilized by civil rights uh, in the early 60s, very much mobilized by distaste for the Cold War. He's not in any way pro-Soviet, but I think he's anti-Soviet feeling, if you see what I mean. He's anti the kind of McCarthyism of an earlier period. Um, And he's someone who is, slightly disillusioned with what he sees as the kind of easy affluent world of the United States left over from the 1950s Um, but um, he then in some ways becomes himself a bit disillusioned I think with some of the directions that the late 1960s takes in the United States so the kind of turn towards increasing violence uh, the turn to what he sees of as more kind of sharp division um, are all things that, at least in retrospect, he comes to regard with some kind of melancholy.
0: One of the, uh, the particularly uh, notable groups that you mention uh, is the, student, the Students for a Democratic uh, Society. Uh, who mm-hmm. were they and what were, what were their origins?
1: Well, they originate um, uh, in the early 60s. They originate initially uh, out of the American labor movement. Um, a kind of spin-off from a, uh, a fraction of them, but I, I think become very much separate from that. I mean, they're really kind of a middle-class movement. Obviously, the student body in the United States is very large compared to um, the kind of student body, even during the expansion of the 1960s that you've got in Western Europe, so that you know, students become almost like a kind of class in themselves. Um, and Students for a Democratic Society, again, begins with a very heavily influenced um in terms of being in favor of civil rights uh it begins with a distaste i think for the established kind of democratic party left if you want to call it that in the united states um it it grows quite fast it has peculiar relationships with um president johnson so that um Things like civil rights and some of the kind of great society programs, I think they find quite attractive. Um, There's almost a moment when it looks as if the SDS is working kind of in parallel with Johnson. And that's that moment where you get a blurring between mainstream politics and um, the radical left. So the SDS, I believe, have this wonderful kind of slogan in the mid-60s, half the way with LBJ, um, implying this kind of rather wary Um, collaboration. And then, of course, the thing that radicalizes them a lot is the escalation of the Vietnam War, um, which I think pushes the SDS a long way to the left.
0: So they were with President Johnson, um, against him on the Vietnam War, and uh, more so maybe on uh, civil rights?
1: More, I think, sort of partially sympathetic to him on issues like civil rights and great society. um, But then really very, very hostile over Vietnam. And Vietnam becomes obviously a hugely dominant kind of issue which begins to eclipse everything else. I
0: and, and right, I wanted to ask you how how did the civil rights um, movement affect um, the, the the radical protests of the 1960s? Did it have any sort of effect on it?
1: Yeah, I think it does. Um, so I think obviously it's something hugely important in the early part of the, the decade of the 60s. Um, I think it um, it, it, it goes with a sense of, you know, um, the need to stand up for different kinds of things. It provides sometimes just the tactics of protests. So things like passive resistance, you know, going limp when the police tried to pick you up, things like that are sometimes uh, techniques that people have acquired um, during participation in civil rights campaigns in the South. Uh, I think it changes people's views of the United States so that, um You know, these are often people who come from the north of the United States, usually from, you know, one of the coasts, the northeast or California. Um, So in some ways, discovering what's going on in the American South is a kind of, you know, a revelation to them. And indeed, sometimes a revelation to Europeans who've had relations with the United States before about 1960, for whom relations with the United States almost invariably meant relations with the eastern seaboard of the United States. So I think in that way, the kind of vision of America changes, um, although I think that ties in with a peculiar thing, which is that quite often uh, American radicals in the early 1960s, at least, think of themselves as patriots. They think of themselves as defending a true America, and, and they, they, they're affronted by the denial of civil rights because they think that's um, you know, something that is not a reflection of the true America. Um, so they're, they're quite kind of sentimental about what they think America has been, and what they think America ought to be in the future. Um, and I think one of the effects of the Vietnam War is sometimes to push them away from that. So that kind of early sense of being true Americans um, begins to, to leave the, the, the um, radical movement.
0: Through the power of television, um, the American people really saw up close uh, the carnage of the Vietnam War, um, mm-hmm. in general, uh, this is during a time where you know the mass media really started to grow. Um, how much? Mm-hmm. How much had media played a role um, as sort of a catalyst in the uh, in radical protest movements?
1: I think it's very important. I mean, it's important in Vietnam. Uh, it's important in the coverage of the Chicago Democratic Convention, where you see violence being put on television screens in big way you see it in important in the way in which uh, urban riots of the late 1960s are are televised Um, so I think you know there's there's a sense of the um, the kind of immediacy of conflict which comes into people's living rooms through television Um, I think quite often uh, radicals are quite conscious of how they can play up to a kind of television image so sometimes they're aware of how they can kind of get their um their message across through television um i think that they you know that there's a kind of multimedia approach on the part of uh, student radicals so that on the one hand you have this huge kind of underground press of small-scale production of radical news sheets and so on and so forth which in some ways is quite kind of old-fashioned very much a print culture um and then you have things being portrayed on television that very much dramatize um student radicalism and violent political division generally. Uh, And I think in the long term, some of that television reproduction that actually probably plays out in ways that benefit the political right more than the political left. Uh, You obviously have Vietnam being brought into people's living rooms by television, although um, one should say that is something that, you know, the left had other means of uh, finding out about what they thought was going on in Vietnam in any case. And also, of course, you have mass culture in the sense of rock music, um, which partly ties in with, I suppose, the culture of the late 1960s and intermittently with radical culture in the late 1960s.
0: Going back to this idea of the generational gap, um, religion often played a role or ideas about religion. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look at Europe, um, religion especially, uh, the Catholic Church, was often a bulwark against more radical ideas, especially on the left. Um, Mm -hmm. But you say this is different in America. Um, How how did this play out in the American experience?
1: Well, um, uh, I I feel very professorial, because I keep saying things are very complicated. I'm just the kind of person that (laughs) 68ers would disapprove of. Um, But, um, uh, it's complicated in the sense that, of course, the Catholic Church itself is changing. So, um, The Vatican II Council, the reforms of the Catholic Church in the early 1960s, I think it excite great hope that the Catholic Church itself is going to undergo a great radical transformation. Now, on the whole, that doesn't happen, but I think it makes some Catholics kind of radicalize in the anticipation that it might happen. So you do, curiously enough, get some people coming into radicalism through the Catholic Church. Um, That's especially true, I think, for example, in Italy, Um, one uh, italian uh, archbishop complains that his um his uh, flock have become divided by people into people who are supporters of vatican one meaning people who are opponents of vatican two because they're reactionaries and people who are supporters of vatican three by which he means people who have now gone beyond vatican two and are beginning to talk about things like the abolition of clerical celibacy and so on and so forth um so you get a radicalism within the catholic church which then also sometimes ties in with social radicalism um I think the American Catholic Church is probably more molded by social conservatism, by ministering to uh, an emigrant flock, um, by Cold War considerations quite often. But having said that, there are, of course, Catholics who become very prominent in radical movements in the United States. Um, Catholics, of course, famously who protest against the Vietnam War. And a group of people like Tom Hayden, who are quite often lapsed Catholics, but I think take a kind of religious enthusiasm into their radical politics. So I think they become um, important figures in, um, you know, in how a new kind of um, uh, political language is used. I think often uh, the sense of the spiritual, the sense of, you know, not being interested in purely material things becomes very important to the radical movement. And that sometimes is something that people take from what had originally been religious backgrounds. Sometimes there's a a kind of link up later on. So Hayden having, I think in in his youth thought of himself as a rebellion a rebel against his Catholic background later in life, you know, begins to talk to people like, uh, radical nuns and to think, well, actually maybe there are people within the Catholic church who've moved in the same direction as me. And then there are obviously other religious dimensions. So, uh, a certain kind of, um, rather earnest Protestantism is very important in the United States. um, so um, people like Hayden's wife, Casey Hayden, very important figure who, you know, was a very um, uh, devout, but I think rather unconventional uh, religious figure in her youth. Uh, and that leads her into support for the civil rights movement. Um, there's a whole group, I think, of people, particularly around uh, the universities in Texas, who see um, a certain kind of unconventional Protestantism as, mobile, as moving into um, uh, radicalism. Quakerism is obviously very important, very important for the anti-war movement, although I think also very important for a certain sense of kind of protest and independent thought, uh, although not every Quakerism or not everybody brought up a Quaker is necessarily a social radical. Um, And um, the the third strand, I suppose, is Judaism, um, in which... In which context, I think most importantly, there's a kind of secularized Judaism that's often very important behind radicalism, which would be true, well, especially in the United States and in France, where a lot of student radicals are from Jewish origins.
0: Moving on back to the Vietnam War uh, for a moment, uh, you point out a very staggering fact that kind of bucks the conventional wisdom about uh, both the generational gap and the Vietnam War. Um, Mm -hmm. You write that it wasn't necessarily generational, um, as there was a Mm -hmm. moment in the mid-1960s when support for the war was higher among the younger uh, than the older. Um, Mm -hmm. How are we to make sense of this?
1: Well, I think partly to do with the general radicalism, the general radicalization, so the increasing distaste for the Vietnam War um, goes with a more general radicalization of the young, I think partly to do, obviously, with the increasing perception that they themselves might be sent to Vietnam, um, and um, partly with uh, a more general kind of uh, drift away from our oh, acceptance of patriotism associated with the Vietnam War, um, so that you, you see this in all sorts of very incongruous contexts. Um, you see it with uh, early American examples of what you'd now call gay liberation. So early on, um, Uh, some gay rights groups campaign to be drafted. You know, they campaign on the grounds they ought to have the right to fight in Vietnam uh, like everybody else. And then uh, later on, increasingly, they define themselves as part of an anti-war movement. So I think um, it's part of a general transformation of the student movement as it moves the left, partly driven by Vietnam, but also partly changing their perceptions of Vietnam as time goes on. Um, And I think um, that, it's probably partly to do with actually finding out more about Vietnam as time goes on. People returning from Vietnam, increasing awareness of Vietnam casualties. I think all those things feed into it.
0: You had mentioned the, um, you know, the power of media and um, mm-hmm. the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. When did, I guess, when did the sort of the violence reach um, reach a precipice? You know, violence between the new left uh, and and law enforcement. When did that? When did that really start to culminate um, that year?
1: Well, I think really after the Democratic Convention. So you then beget a split of the SDS, the fractions of the SDS going off increasingly into violence, uh, and in some cases going underground, um, forming the Weather Underground as it eventually becomes. Um, so kind of. Uh, move towards a kind of urban guerrilla movement on the part of bits of the left. Now, I think there's a really, as in most of democratic Europe as well, it's really only a very small fraction of the new left that goes off into that kind of armed uh, insurrection type uh, fantasy. Um, But obviously that has quite a dramatic effect in terms of how the left's perceived um, and ties up with, you know, Other forms of conflict with racial conflict in cities with the Black Panthers, with things like that. Um, So I think that partly produces uh, a radicalization of conflict between the state and the new left, but also divides the new left very sharply. And lots of figures from the new left pull back from that precipice and feel this is the moment where things have gone too far and uh, feel disillusioned and uncomfortable. Um, with the state that the, the New Left has got into, of whom I mean a very obvious example in the uh, United States would be Tom Hayden, who I think uh, feels very awkward with that kind of um, turn to violence. In France, uh, the Gauche prolétarienne, which is a kind of Maoist group, actually dissolves itself because its leaders become fearful of a turn to violence. Um, in Italy, uh, similarly, a uh, lot of Continua, another kind of Maoist group, eventually really breaks up partly, I think, again, in response to the, the what they see as a threat of turning into a terrorist movement.
0: And the final question, we're, in 2018, we're a considerably moderated country uh, than we were in 1968, at least optically, you know, in terms of uh, radical protest, um, violent clashes, mm-hmm. um, sort of the... the uh, the rapid change and the rapid social changes. Um, but what, I guess, what are the residual effects of 1968 that we, um, that we live with in 20 in 2018?
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I mean, in all, in some ways, of course, uh, there are, 1968 has become ubiquitous in the sense that the 68 have grown up, have had a moment when they've held a lot of power, I suppose in lots of ways, Clinton was a 68er, um, obviously, attitudes to sexual morality, attitudes to women's liberation, attitudes to gay liberation, attitudes to race, all hugely influenced by 1968. Um, So there are lots of ways in which now bits of the mainstream left in the United States, I mean, the Democratic Party in the United States, or um, the mainstream, you know, socialist parties in Western Europe have adopted a lot of uh, the values of 1968. So I think that's, one dimension of it, uh, I think in the United States, there's a particularly important dimension in that sixty eight helps to reform the political right in fact rather than the left, so that things like distaste between bits of the working classes, particularly the white working class and student radicals, um, facilitates a a move of bits of the white working class to the political right towards voting for the Republicans. Uh, I think that's very important for Nixon. And then, of course, very important indeed for the the figure who almost defines himself in opposition to the kind of Californian 68 of Berkeley, which is Ronald Reagan. So in some ways, Reagan's election in 1980, 1980, you could say, as you know, the final revenge against 68, uh, as far as the um, political establishment in the United States is concerned. Um, But like everything about the world and the United States. I feel Donald Trump calls it all into question. Everything I thought I was sure about, uh, seems less sure now that Donald Trump is in power. Um, so that, um, uh, the world of the kind of cold war establishment, um, now seems so badly shaken. I mean, it seems extraordinary that John McCain is now being celebrated as if he's a kind of, you know, swass left wing hero, um, because he's an opponent of Donald Trump or was an opponent of Donald Trump. um, And the strange thing is that in lots of ways, of course, Trump himself is the last survivor of 68 in the United States. So Trump is, I suppose, the last major politician who was himself of 68-ish age, who was, um, you know, of student age in 1968. Um, And there are ways in which Trump's politics, his radicalism of a certain sort, although hardly radicalism of the left, um, his kind of uh, distaste for the establishment, uh, his... uh, well, it's hard to say anything other than childishness, um, you know, re- is remarkably reminiscent of bits of the student left in 1968.
0: The book is 1968, Radical Protests and Its Enemies. Richard Vinen, thank you so much for your time.
1: Uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking
0: to you. Thank you for joining us. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Jonathan Mervoides signing off. But when you talk about know that you can